Noise Nation. Greetings, orthopedic aficionados and pugilism fans. Great word. And welcome to another hard-hitting episode of Device Nation. And yes, that music can only mean one thing. We have officially made it to the top step of the behavioral influence stairway, behavior change and influence. Congratulations, you made it. Great quote. Nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't how hard you hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. Sage wisdom from Rocky Balboa. Today's guest is going to punch you in the face with some words of wisdom and inspiration. Motivational speaker, author, consultant, blogger, podcaster, did I mention she's an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Vonda Wright. You're going to want to hang around for that. Well, we've spent quite a few episodes going up the behavioral influence stairway developed by former FBI BSU chief and friend of Device Nation, Dr. Greg Vecchi. And here we are at the top. So you've asked questions, actively listened, shown empathy, developed rapport and trust. Now you have influence. Now, if you're an FBI agent, behavior change and influence is... The hostages were released. The gun was put down. If you're a surgeon, you just booked a case. If you're a medical device rep, you made the sale. It's amazing how many jobs there are out there that fit into this stairway model. So today we're going to look at three things while we're at the top of the stairway. What a view from up here. Number one is how do we keep that zone of influence, so to speak? Number two, how can we lose it? And lastly, is there anything besides doing the previous steps poorly or trying to skip a step that can keep us from ever reaching the summit and achieving peak rep while staying in the zone of influence? This is actually pretty straightforward, as I have learned from hyper-successful reps in this space. They intuitively know to set up residence at the bottom of the stairway. Disconnected from behavior change and influence, they instinctively linger in questions, listening, empathy as the rapport and trust just continues to build and build over years and years and years. Behavior change and influence just happens as a natural byproduct. Isn't that true for any relationship, by the way? Not just sales. I had a great conversation last night with a very well-known surgeon who was bragging about his striker rep, whom he considered to be the best rep he had ever worked with. And one thing that he said really interested me, the rep would never show product to him or his residents. He would always have a dinner and bring in a specialist to do that. This rep has probably never heard of the stairway, but here he is doing it organically. Just amazing. Keeping the I'm here to help completely separate from the I'm here to sell. Keeping it pure. Brilliant strategy outsourcing that part of the stairway and just working on the first two steps over and over in an excellent manner. Well, that's how we keep it. Well, how do we lose it? The challenge is that when you build up a book of behavior change and influence success, it can be very easy, very tempting to start to believe your own press that you're somebody. And those first two steps don't seem so important anymore. I love this proverb, a man is tested by the praise he receives. And that is so true, isn't it? Most of us can handle pressure, stress, travail, but how many can handle praise and success? Well, many can't. I have seen many a rep after successful years in this business beginning to channel this guy from SpongeBob. I was a wimp before Anchor Arms. Now I'm a jerk and everybody loves me. Now I'm a jerk and everybody loves me. Know this rep? They thought that everybody loved them in the hospital until they went to vendor and they were left out as not a single surgeon fought on their behalf or the rep who had nearly 100% market share with the company he represented, got promised way more commissions with another company and left, and not a single surgeon followed him, and he ended up having to leave the industry altogether. Those are two real examples. Well, did these examples happen overnight? No. It was a virtually imperceptible slide over time until the reps found themselves literally at the bottom of the stairway alone. So what's our insurance policy against squandering that zone of influence once we've achieved it? Well, the answer is simple, yet exceedingly difficult for many with a modicum of success. Staying humble 
not taking credit for any influence or behavioral change that came your way, being thankful for it, and then continuing to walk back down the stairs and working those two steps ad infinitum. When you think you don't need to do this anymore because your sales rep of the year and your president's club ring is full, you are moving out of the zone and you don't even know it yet. Well, lastly, is there anything that can keep you from ever seeing behavior change in an account, from ever getting that sale? Yes, you can't control other people, says this married man. Some customers are very happy in their current situation and just won't change unless there's a man-made disaster. There may be product issues. There may be relationship issues. Your implant may not seem the best in the HCP's mind, or it's something they trained on, on and on. And then there is this peculiar anomaly. Yes, great memories here. When I was a kid, Saturday mornings were the least productive five hours of my entire week. Saturday morning cartoons. That was truly my time to shine sitting in front of the TV with a bowl of cereal that had so much added sugar in it that running a spoon around the bottom was akin to dredging the intercoastal waterway. It's a miracle. I do not have diabetes. Those were magical moments. The Jetsons, Screwy Squirrel. I love Tex Avery cartoons. Just insane. Three Stooges, Fat Albert was always discouraging because you knew it was the end of the line. It was the last cartoon of the day and there was a yard to be mowed. But one cartoon that stood out to me was the Merry Melodies franchise. And that had everything a sedentary young boy could ever want from Foghorn Leghorn to Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner, and Wild E. Coyote. So let's unpack that cartoon for a moment. Every episode had the coyote trying to catch the roadrunner as a meal. I assume a roadrunner was a bird. He would use creative means to do so from Rube Goldberg-esque contraptions. Check that out sometime, by the way. Rube Goldberg machines. Just a genius. To invariably employing the Acme catalog of gadgets to help him in this exercise in what would be futility. Every time an Acme gadget was employed, it would end up backfiring with the coyote, invariably falling into his own trap or falling over a cliff. Well, one gadget in particular was the portable hole, a complete defiance of physics, which is why I thought it was so funny. You take this flat black disc, put it anywhere you want it, and there you are. You have a hole, a bottomless hole that hopefully the unsuspecting roadrunner is going to fall in. Well, you probably guessed it that every time Wiley e. Coyote put it on the ground to catch the roadrunner, he would invariably end up falling into it himself. So you're thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with never seeing behavior change in your customers? Well, one thing I've learned from doing this job as long as I have is that some customers, and there's not a lot of them, but some possess a portable hole that gets pulled out right before behavior change and influence. They will allow you to access to pretty much the entire stairway, going out to dinner, having a great time. We're singing the fun song. Yes, I'm going to try one of those. And us reps being the hopeful creatures we are, think we are mere millimeters from a sale. It's so close, we can smell it, and we're putting it on salesforce.com. And just when you think that you're just about to look lovingly into your customer's eyes at the altar, exchange rings, and walk down the aisle as your manager throws rice... Out comes the portable hole, and you fall right back down to the bottom of the stairway. I thought we had a trial case. Well, guess what, Sherlock? There never was a case. But there is a great meeting at a West Coast ski resort next month that this customer would love to attend on your dom, so that's something, right? Wrong. Well, what's the takeaway on this anomaly? There are some customers that will never allow behavior change, but they sure do enjoy the attention and being courted. And because they hate conflict and want to be liked, will never be straight with you about their intentions. How do we avoid these budget draining, time sucking distractions? Ask around with reps you trust. It pays to be nice to your competition. I'll say that again. It wasn't until after I popped out of one customer's tornado found myself three counties over that I began to listen to other reps and found out it was happening to them too. A teachable moment that doesn't ever need to happen to you now that you know the secret of Saturday morning cartoons. And a teachable moment for me as well as I hate conflict 
and will inadvertently lead car salespeople along if I'm not careful, not wanting to dash their hopes. I can do the very same thing. Don't lead people along. The ugly truth is always preferable to a beautiful lie, whether you're a surgeon or a rep. Well, there's no portable hole at the end of this conversation with our next guest. We're going to step confidently alongside Dr. Vonda Wright as she shares her amazing story about building people whilst building a brand. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wright. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's not every day that I get to talk to someone who's a speaker, author, consultant, prolific blogger, podcaster, and an orthopedic surgeon. And I look forward to asking you about all the above. But first, let's go back to Wheaton, Illinois. What puts you on the path to medicine? <laughs> so, wow, you went way back. You, way you've back. been almost, ba- almost back to my APGAR scores, which, by the way, were good <laughs> if you need to know that. So, you know what? Uh, I did go to Wheaton College, which is a a small Christian liberal arts college in Chicago, which has an amazing academic program, which I'm thankful for. You know, we always said silly things like, oh, Wheaton is the Harvard of Christian schools. But then but then maybe we should say Harvard is the Wheaton of uh, secular schools. Who knows? But anyway, we had a great science department there. And, you know, like many smart kids in my generation. Because my generation, remember, was before the digital era. Computers came into existence uh, in the classroom when I was in, in high school, actually. So, so, so now smart kids can go into coding and all that kind of stuff. But at the time, you know, the pathway was, oh, why don't you just go be a doctor? So, you know, I have this picture that I drew in junior high, I think it was a library assignment of me as an orthopedic surgeon. And I'm not even sure I knew what orthopedics was, but it was a long word and it sounded cool. So, uh, so there was that stuck in the back of my mind. So in Wheaton, I was a biology major and, you know, here's the interesting thing is about my sophomore year when everybody has to survive organic chemistry, I failed my second organic chemistry test. Now, I had never failed a test in my life, nor have I since, but that was enough to pivot my mindset that, well, maybe maybe medicine wasn't for me. So what's interesting is that even though I course corrected and ended up making a B in organic chemistry and, you know, uh, really was a very successful biology major, I had pivoted enough that my first uh, master's degree or my next degree was a master's degree in oncology nursing. So I came out of Wheaton and I went to Rush University and in in about two years got another bachelor's and a master's. So there's, you know, I've got a, I've got a lot of degrees and that I don't suggest that, but that's my pathway. And so I was so fortunate, however, at a very young age that the uh, chairman of the of the oncology department saw promise in me. I decided that uh, I was I was 26 years old. I'd had a lot of leadership experience. I had helped run a cancer institute, a medical school. I decided was next, and then lo and behold, I went to the University of Chicago. So then I was fortunate to get into a, a really spectacular orthopedic residency program at University of Pittsburgh under the guidance of everybody's favorite, Dr. Freddie H. Fu, who really, it was a place where where opportunities abounded, right? There was an expectation of leadership. It was a, it, we call ourselves a blue collar residency, meaning we worked our butts off night and day, even with work hour restrictions. And I was the last class without work hour restrictions. I, and I still have a little, uh, chip on my shoulder <laughs> about <laughs> working 120 hours a week, but it is what it is. So, you know, we were a blue collar program who trained leaders and Pitt has the distinction of training the most chairman in the history of orthopedics. So there was that expectation. And I learned a lot about being a hardworking blue collar orthopedic surgeon who just ground out the work, built programs, had the opportunity to build and do really good research surrounded by people who had the same drive. Why'd you decide to go orthopedics? I grew up on a farm in Kansas and I've got these hands that I was given, that I can see with my brain what needs to happen, and my hands will do it. There's this connection that I've learned by being so manual. That's why I went to orthopedics, you know, because I, I I thought I'd try, so surgery, right? 
And I tried general surgery. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do guts for six years just so I can specialize, right? And then I tried, I did a rotation in head and neck, but there was just too much mucus and, <laughs> and stuff that I didn't want to deal with. And then, you know, I, I come from a athletic background and I like to build things. And then I did this study with two orthopedic surgeons and realized that you get to treat people from the minute of their birth to the minute of their death in a very aspirational way. And I've come to understand over the course of my career, and it's kind of my mantra, that by saving mobility, I am actually saving people's lives. I think when orthopedic surgeons get fixated on the narrow lane of what metal am I going to put in or where, uh, where in the notch am I going to put the ACL tunnel, that's really, really important. But you cannot lose the fact that when you make someone walk again or you fix their arms so that they can go back to the job that they feed their family with, you are not only just putting metal and bone and fixing something and walking away, you are saving them from the ravages of chronic disease because there are 33 chronic diseases directly impacted by mobility, which we're the gatekeepers of, that's, that mobility will save their lives. And it's everything you think of, heart disease, hypertension, stroke, Alzheimer's, everything that kills us is directly affected by how mobile we are and who are the gatekeepers of mobility, orthopedic surgeons. And so that's why I get out of bed in the morning. Yes, I do love surgery. I do love gadgets. I love to put things back together, but the real reason is that I'm saving lives. Was it working in the shadow of Dr. Freddie Fu that inspired you to do a sports medicine fellowship? Well, he certainly made it look interesting, didn't he? Well, you know what? Given that I was um, an oncology nurse, I actually always thought that I would probably do oncology. Right. However, the reality of oncology and orthopedics is that there are only about 125 on orthopedic oncologists in the country, and you must be in an academic center, and it gives you very little flexibility. So there, was, there is that one factor. The second factor is, you know, in sports medicine, you get to treat people of all ages and skill levels, right? If you do total joints, for instance, usually you're confined to, to 60s, 70s, 80s, and as long as they walk again, or I mean, that's enough, right? Right. So I wanted to treat people with tools that would help them aspire to the life they envision, right? And whether you're a peewee on the, on the you know, I come from a hockey background and peewee is an actual division, a peewee uh, um, in, your, in your backyard or on, on little ice or, or you're on a ball field or frankly in the boardroom, there is not a place where sports medicine is not applicable. Because the same performance that we squeeze out of professional athletes and teach our college and high school athletes, those same principles of performance are what we teach executives in our executive performance programs. So um, it's all a continuum of how to aspire to optimize your performance while minimizing your injury. I believe you've been out in practice for 15, 16 years, and you've seen all sides of the equation, private employment, private practice, academic. Uh, what's it been like building a practice over all those years? Well, you know what? I think building a practice, uh, whether you're in academic medicine, which I was for so long, or in a employed hospital situation, or now even in private practice, it's all basically the same steps. And I, and I talk to young surgeons about this all the time, because it's certainly something we don't learn. The business of medicine is certainly something we don't learn in medical school or residency. We're so busy learning the technical skills. And the steps are these, you know, in orthopedic surgery, the funnel, if you will, of patients to take care of is different than in, than in other fields. And especially in sports medicine, only 30% of people that come to any orthopedic surgeon in sports medicine uh, come from direct physician referral, 30%. So building the relationships with your PCPs and the PTs and the uh, other types of staff are, is critical, but it's only 30% of your business. A full 50% of the funnel for business in sports medicine comes from the public. So if, you know, and if you are businessmen out there, you're thinking B2B, which is doctor to doctor, 30%. 
B2C, which is consumer, business to consumer, is 50%. So that if I don't get out there in the community and know everybody and become embedded and speak to the Rotary Clubs and speak to the Chamber of Commerce and build business relationships and and refer to PTs that are not actually owned by my hospital, I am not going to capture the 50% of business that I need, right? And then the last 20% is miscellaneous from somewhere. So relationships are critical when you're building a business. Some of it is marketing, and that's another relationship, right? It's, it's At this point, it's not just print marketing. It's digital and geo-tracking and know where your patient, potential patients live and what they read and how to pop up when on Pandora, right? right? How to pop up on Pandora when they're listening to their playlists. All those things are critical for building practices now. Um, and it doesn't matter which environment you're in. And I've used all these tactics in all three environments that I've been in across the uh, almost 20 years of my career. You're currently chief of Northside Hospital Sports Medicine. Uh, what are your thoughts on building and leading groups of surgeons? Well, you know what? Let me let me tell you that I just finished building uh, Northside Hospital's orthopedic surgery department. And in three years, we went from four surgeons to 25 clinicians in 15 locations because Atlanta is such a huge metroplex. And the hospital was so committed to serving the environment, they put great resources behind this. So, you know, in that short amount of time, we established nutrition, physical therapy, all this, the surgeons we needed, non-operative doctors, uh, physical therapy, and leading them was pure joy because this is, I am a servant leader, meaning, yes, I'm a leader who sets a strategic vision and the timeline and the pathway, but then what I do is I invest the time and the wherewithal to hire the very best people because it is a fallacy for a physician leader to believe that they can do anything on their own. So what I did after I set this framework is I brought with me three astounding people from University of Pittsburgh. I recruited from all over the country. I called all my network because in orthopedics, network is key and where you come from and do your fellowship is key. It matters, right? So I called my network from HSS where I did my fellowship and University of Pittsburgh where I did my residency. And I called my colleagues at Stanford and a variety of other top level programs. Rush, I called them, I called Vail. And I recruited the best people I could find, right? Because I know that if I bring really smart people, which is the baseline, driven to be successful, driven to do great research, driven to be a little entrepreneurial and try new things, that we are going to do great things. And you know what? That's that's what I saw happen. So I set a strategic vision. I recruited the very best people I could. And then I gave them responsibility, for instance. And then I stepped out of the way, right? I hired them for something. So I brought with me a partner from the University of Pittsburgh and made him fellowship program director. And I said, go build us a fellowship and made him uh, the associate medical director of the Georgia State. I was the medical director of the Georgia State Athletics Program, and I made him associate and in charge of the football team, right? So you just choose the best people. You give them responsibility. You check in when you need to. You course correct the vision. And then when everybody buys into this vision that's greater than themselves, because what you cannot be to be a great leader is selfish. We cannot be like the seagulls in Dora, which are mine, 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 <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that you're going to build nothing but yourself and you're not going to leave a legacy and you're not going to serve patients best. And so, you know what, after building the, the Northside Orthopedic Institute, now I'm happy to tell you, although we haven't announced it yet, but I'm moving to a place called Lake Nona to build yet again another orthopedic surgery department and uh, an academic department. So when that's announced, I'll make sure and let you know, but we'll use the same steps, right? right. We'll set a strategic vision. We will lead in a non-selfish, um, a servant way. And sometimes that means grabbing the mop in the OR and just getting the work done so your patient can be treated, which I learned from Dr. Ferguson, who is the, the founder of the Pittsburgh program. 
And then hiring the very best people who are as motivated as you are, giving them responsibility and letting them succeed. You know, you've done such a phenomenal job developing your digital footprint, building your brand. It's easy to forget that you are a practicing sports medicine orthopedic surgeon. Uh, Tell me about your practice these days. What cases are you doing a lot of and uh, what what do you enjoy doing? Gosh, I'm an arthroscopist. I do shoulder, hip, and knee arthroscopy. About 40%. When I'm fully fully going, about 40% of my practice is hip arthroscopy. And I'm one of the old timers, actually. I was fortunate to inherit Dr. Mark Philippon's hip practice when he left University of Pittsburgh. So I've been doing it since way back then. And I love the way hip arthroscopy has really led from the front in terms of validating their outcomes tools evaluating new techniques, addressing biomechanics early on, but not exclusively. So I do hip arthroscopy. I do shoulder arthroscopy and reconstruction, and I do um, knee arthroscopy, everything from a simple meniscus to uh, multi-ligamentous reconstruction and cartilage uh, repair and reconstruction using all the new orthobiologic technology. So, you know, it's a rich, and I, I posted the other day about, you know, if The joy is after 20 years, it was something like, what brings you joy? And for me, even after 20 years, I still sing in the hallways of the OR and I give hugs when my patients graduate. And that's that's the real joyful part of taking care of people, which uh, is a privilege that I hope surgeons don't forget because, you know, imagine the first time people meet you, they put their trust in you. That is a privilege and an honor that you can't take for granted. And so, you know, yes, I'm still a practicing surgeon. Thank goodness. It's the lifeblood of what I do. Cause you know what, honestly, I have a lot going on. I considered, I don't know, maybe I just jump off and do administrative things. But the fact is that identity number one outside my family and being the mother of a blended family of six is surgeon. I was given these hands for a reason. You brought it up earlier about the Lemieux Sports Complex. Right, And you were providing care for everything from hockey to rugby. But one caught my eye, a ballet. And I was talking to my wife. I was like, I wonder what orthopedic interventions are peculiar to that art form. I think for people who watch ballet peripherally or are forced by their spouses to go to the (laughs) Nutcracker, which is probably the case for many orthopedic surgeons that don't do dance medicine, they don't realize, and I'm not really kidding when I say this, because listen, I've taken care of Olympians and world rugby and collegiate and professional ballet dancers are some of the best athletes that I've ever taken care of um, because it is power and grace wrapped up in one, right? Mm -hmm. It takes out, out of this world strength to do what they do. And yet they do it with a smile and you know, think of the danseurs, the men who are lifting a hundred or a hundred and twenty pound five pound woman over their head while spinning, not losing their balance, and then tour the stage with their own round of giant leaps and jumps, right? So number one, if you're listening, do not think that these people are anything except exquisite athletes. And as such, it takes more than a ten thousand hours of training and they get a lot of injuries, both repetitive and acute. So, you know, for instance, uh, a lifetime of turning out can lead to hip problems. There's a lot of hip arthroscopy and dance medicine at the ends of careers, which, you know, I've retired a few dancers that I've taken care of and they were in their forties, which is a long lifespan for a professional dancer and they needed hip replacements, right? So there's that kind of orthopedics. There's the chronic overuse. And, you know, it's not just an orthopedic surgeon. We build teams of musculoskeletal clinicians around our ballet companies at the, at the Pittsburgh ballet, we had nutrition, we had physical therapy, we had Uh, Pilates and something called gyrotonics, as well as the orthopedic surgeon, right? The same, the Atlanta Ballet has the same type arrangement with an an exquisite um, physical therapy team that leads them. And, And I see that here in Orlando, although I'm not really involved with them yet. So it takes teams of clinicians to take care of these exquisite dancers. And they get chronic wear and tear. They get overuse injuries. They pop tendons. They get really tight because, you know, they use 
one set of muscle groups. They get stress fractures of their tibias because their calves are so strong from being up on releve, which is what it's called when you're up on your toes, right? Right. And so any injury you can imagine any other kind of athlete having, dancers have too. You've received so many honors in your career thus far. AOA Emerging Leader, Atlanta Magazine, 500 Most Influential People, Wise Woman of the Year. Congratulations on all of them. Anything in particular that you're really proud of uh, thus far in your career? You know, I'm honored that, I mean, and I haven't won that many honors. You're nice to say all that. I know I know lots of surgeons who have more plaques on the wall than me, but I think what it recognizes is consistent hard work that's done for the benefit of others. And I, you know what? I'm proud of that. I'm, pr- I'm proud that I'm one of only 6% of women in orthopedic surgery. And when I started, there were only 3% and yes, we've doubled, but, and I've proud, I, I'm proud I survived it. Right. Cause it, it frankly has not been easy, but so I'm proud of that. But what I'm also proud of is something I try to teach young surgeons and, you know, frankly, women in particular, is that if you want an opportunity, you have to be brave and strong. I call it strong and courageous to throw your hat in the ring, suggest yourself for it, even if you don't think you're quite ready. I mean, you're a smart person. Orthopedic surgeons are some of the smartest people that get out of medical school. You will figure it out, but you must have the strength and the courage to throw your hat in the ring. So, I am proud of the fact that I threw my hat in the ring to become medical director of the UPMC Lemieux Sports Complex because I might not have been tapped on the shoulder. But I threw my hat in the ring and it was recognized that I had the ability to do that. It was the same with with becoming the founding chief at Northside. Um, I just didn't wait for somebody to tap me on the shoulder because, I don't know, some people get tapped on the shoulder all the time. That's never been my experience. And and we can talk about mentorship and orthopedics if we want to, but so I threw my hat in that ring, you know, they reached out and I pursued it. And I think that's something I'm really proud of that, that I have created the career that I envisioned and didn't wait on anybody just to make it for me. Cause at least in my case, that doesn't happen. Let's talk about mentorship for just a second. Since you brought it up, that to me is hand in hand with servant leadership. And I'm just curious, any thoughts you have on it? It's got to be really rewarding. Well, one of the, one of the real joys of my career in academics is to be able to mentor not only young doctors coming up, but I had the great fortune of to do my research. I always had a research assistant, whether it was a medical student who took a year off, Um, whether it was someone trying to get into medical school and took a year to do research um, to help them do that, or in a variety of situations. I've always had somebody like that. And it's been a great joy to me because all of them, without exception, have gone on and reached their goals. And and part of that comes from just being a sounding board. Some A part of being a mentor is opening doors or showing people doors that they didn't even know existed. But it's more than mentorship, right? There's When I talk about the concept of finding your way in a career, I talk about mentors, sponsors, and champions. So mentors are people who teach you what to do or you they you are asked questions and you give suggestions and sometimes it's introductions right right a champ uh, a sponsor is someone who's not actually a mentor you have a relationship with them but when opportunities come up a sponsor might say something like oh hey uh why don't you ask kevin to do that for you you know you, you someone suggests you puts you into the position where opportunities could arise for you. So that's a sponsor. A champion is the person, when there's an opportunity, they pick up the phone, they call the other chairman or whoever, and they lay their reputation on the line for you. They say, hey, other chairman, this is Vonda Wright. And now I have a relationship with the other chairman, right? right? I say, hey, Joe, this is Vonda. You need to hire Kevin. And based on my championing you, you get an opportunity because I have risked my reputation for you. And so while I have not had, frankly, the honest truth is I've really not had any mentors who who pulled me up through the ranks. I think men in orthopedics are much better than women at this. So for instance, when you're when you become the president of one of our societies, you get to choose the 
program chair from your network to build the whole program, whether it's the Academy or the AOSSM or ANA. And uh, your mentor usually chooses, a mentor usually chooses one of their mentees. So I've never had somebody in my career that does that for me. I've had great opportunities and I'm so thankful for, for UPMC. Don't get me wrong. But I have had some profound sponsors and champions who pick up the phone and say, Vonda is the person to do this. You must hire her, right? So, right. Uh, so I love being a mentor in a chronic way, right? It's a, a mentor is kind of a longer term relationship, but I'm so fortunate to have had sponsors and champions. And so as I counsel the people I teach or the people who come to me now for true mentorship, we talk about the concepts of sponsorship and champions and making the relationships with people who would do that for you in the future. Great stuff. I, I was taking notes on that one. You know, you brought <laughs> up uh, you brought up earlier about throwing your hat in the ring, and you've certainly thrown your hat in the ring in the digital realm in a big way. Most podcasts don't make it past 15 episodes, and I counted 67 coming from your direction. Tell us about the show, Hot for Your Health, and what's it all about? I love that you've asked me all about my orthopedic career, but part of it, I'm a Renaissance person, and I have, um, it's just the way my mind works. I have a lot of ideas. And so here, here's the differentiator, right? There are some surgeons, uh, and we all know them, and thank God for them. They're blue room surgeons. They eat, live, drink, die, sleep in the OR. They'd rather be in the OR lounge than go home. That is their, <laughs> that is their lane. That is where they yeah, thrive, right? That's true. That's true. There are people, we all know them, and thank God for them. And I love surgery and I am in the OR as long as I need to be in the OR and I'd love going there. I'd love to go there. You know, frankly, most surgeons would rather be in the OR than in clinic. But I am also a renaissance person, meaning I have a lot of other ideas. I'm entrepreneurial at heart. I like to do public speaking, which I do all over the world. And so in 2012, I started a nonprofit called Women's Health Conversations, knowing that women make 80% of all the healthcare decisions in this country for themselves and everybody they touch. So listen, listen, surgeons out there, if you want to build your practice, get in front of the moms because they're the ones that make the appointments and decide who comes to you, frankly. So anyway, back to the story. So um, I decided I needed to get in front of the most powerful demographic for healthcare in this country, and it was the women. So I started this nonprofit and started creating all this amazing content because I have the fortune of having a, a wide network of smart, savvy doctors who are great teachers. And I just started calling them and I said, come speak at my conference, come speak at my conference. So my conference in Pittsburgh grew the first year from 250 people, which we held in the, in the Pittsburgh Penguins club you know, in the, in the arena, they have the uh, really posh clubs. They gave, they let me use it in year one, 250 to nearly a thousand people every year until I left Pittsburgh. And we had a reach of about 6.6 .6 million listeners on our various digital channels. Well, we had all this great content. So initially I just repurposed it as a hot for your health podcast, because once was not enough for people to hear from these brilliant doctors. Right. And so basically that's what Hot for Your Health does is it is it connects the public with the great speakers we have not only for women's health conversations but now I have uh spun off a membership community called Ageless Life and it's spelled A J L E S period L I F E because all of my research has been in musculoskeletal aging and what I've discovered by studying masters athletes who refuse to sit still is that uh, we can be healthy, vital, active, joyful from the until the until far into the foreseeable future? And any orthopod who tells their patient to just grow up and act their age, stop doing what they're doing, is a, a, frankly, guys, that's a cop out. And you're asking your patient to sit still until they die. When we know that mobility is the key to healthier living, right? right. So. So I've spun off Ageless Life based on my research. And so I've added that content to Hot for Your Health. So it just perpetuates the more interesting people you have on, the more interesting people who want to be on. I get emails several times a week 
from people who want to be on. So it's just a great way to spread great information. But the reason I called it hot for your health is because Women's Health Conversations demographic was initially 40 to 60-year-old people, which is fantastic. However, if I'm going to change the health of this country through the work that I do, I need to reach the younger people. So I started throwing these Hot for Your Health parties, which is a, a mixing party. I would invite all kinds of techies and all the social people. And then right in the middle of the party, we would stop the party and we would allow five biotech firms to pitch for seven minutes to all these, the public, because my philosophy was if I could fascinate people with biotech and the future of health, then what's so cool, or in other words, what's hot for your health right now, then they would be more committed to their own health. And so that that's the genesis of this. It just wasn't some name I wrote on a napkin Love over it. coffee. Yeah. If, Cause I need, I have found over the years that I can give all the advice I want, but people have to really engage and want it for themselves. And so these are all my desperate attempts to improve the health of this country inside and outside of the OR. Well, part of that is a blog that you've done. You've written on additive manufacturing, machine learning, stress management, great stuff. Where can listeners connect with you to find this content? Several places. So my website is Dr. Dr. Vonda Wright. There's stuff about my speaking, which I'm happy to do for anyone interested in talking about rethinking uh how to live and prosper, um, how to age in an amazing way. You know, lots of financial houses hire me to talk to their producers and their clients about how to live longer and prosper. Um, so you can find out about my speaking on Dr. Vonda Wright. You can, you can read all my blogs on a variety of topics. It's, you know, I've just added the ability to send me x-rays on there. So, you know, even, even there's a little clinical stuff on there. So Dr. Vonda Wright, then uh, I am really active on Instagram. Uh, my handle there is, I have two of them. One is Dr. Vonda Wright, which is where you're going to see stuff about women's health. You're going to see pictures of my husband, who's a two-time Stanley Cup champion and all his antics. You're going to see just life stuff there. But I also have a orthopedic Instagram, which is uh, orthosportsmd, because I found that my general population wasn't that interested in the blood and guts of surgery. So when I do post-surgery, it's on the uh, ortho sports MD Instagram. Um, and then of course I have a YouTube channel. You can find me there. And then remember I talked about women's health conversations. If you're specifically interested in all the amazing stuff we're talking about, that has a, that has a website, women's health conversations. It's on Facebook. It's on Instagram. So there's lots of opportunities. Well, one question I got to ask when I survey all these opportunities How do you function with no sleep? Well, now listen, remember when I told you that uh, I was the last class of residents with no work hour restriction? Right. The sad truth that came out of that is knowing that I am completely capable at a high level of functioning for 41 hours. Wow. Because remember, I don't know how long you've been in this business, but remember, we used to come in to round at four or five in the morning operate all day, stay on call all night, get up again, or probably never go to sleep, frankly, operate all day, and then finally get to go home when the team went home at six or seven or nine. And so that equals about 41 hours. And at that point, I know I did it long enough, seven years of residency and fellowship. I'm done, right? I kind of crash after 41 hours. It's when the writing goes off the page. You know, we, we used to hand write notes and the writing started. So I know I'm capable of that. And so even today, when I need to pull that out, I pull that out. But here's the thing. Remember, what did I say about leadership? You set a strategic vision and you surround yourself with very capable people there you go. and let them work. So to accomplish everything I accomplish, I set a strategic vision and I surround myself with capable people who can help me do the work. So there's the secret. I hate that you made me let it out, but I, I don't do each and everything myself, but I set the vision and let smart people go. Well, one thing you do do yourself, uh, you talked about blue room surgeons. Uh, I want to talk about the green room 
for a minute. You've been a guest medical expert on CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN, The Doctors, Dr. Oz, Device Nation. Uh, any stories uh, from the green room? Uh, what's it been like? Well, actually, you know what? I love it. And if there's any TV producers listening, I sure would love my own show because I can, <laughs> I can frankly pull it off. But you know what? What's fun is getting to talk about subjects I love and knowing that 5.5 million people, for instance, sure. are going to be benefiting from medical education, right? Because I got to tell you, some orthopedic surgeons have always viewed me with a little bit of skepticism and raised eyebrow thinking, what is she doing? But here's the reality. Medical education is so important to me that I realize that if in a typical blue room week, I may see a hundred patients between my various clinics, the people I bring to the OR, I'm only capable of changing the lives of a hundred people right? Only a hundred people get to hear me say, well, we're going to help you with your arthritis, but it's not just about putting a cortisone shot in the knee. Frankly, I don't put many cortisone shots in the knee. We have an entire pathway of how to get you out of arthritic pain. And it really doesn't have anything to do with cortisone, right? Mm -hmm. But if for me to communicate that most broadly, I need to get in front of people and writing books. I've written five books for the public. Being on TV, being on the radio is the way to educate the public. And when I started, lots of people raised their eyebrows. Now, the good news is that now digital media marketing being on the radio is pretty common for orthopedic surgeons. So, but I've been fortunate to get to get to be on TV and I just love it for the reasons you've talked about. And something that's really exciting to me is after I commented and explained Tiger Woods injuries to America on the Today Show, I now have gotten the opportunity to be there every month since then and really present great topics about mobility and about changing the way we age in this country. So it's a privilege that I don't take lightly, but the point is medical education, right? It's to help this country live better, which is what we all want to do as doctors. You know, that's a real passion of yours. I see it as a common thread in a lot of what you do, active aging and mobility. What what drives you in that area? Where does that passion come from? Well, you know what? I think there's a myth in this country that aging is an inevitable decline from the vitality of youth. You know, we're a youth-worshipping country, uh, but there's a myth that we go from this vitality of youth down some slippery slope to frailty in aging and that there's a it, it's a myth that you can do nothing about it. It's a cop-out, frankly. So I began studying master's athletes when I was a chief resident and began studying something called the National Senior Games, which is a biannual event. You have to be 50 years old to be eligible. 50 to 103 was my oldest athlete. But these people have taken sedentary living, which is killing people in this country, out of the equation of their lives. And we have 50-year-olds winning the mile run in 434, and we have 70-year-olds running a mile in seven minutes. And with that, harnessing the power of mobility to save their own lives. And who wouldn't be passionate about that? But when I started doing the research, I thought, you know what, if I just talk about fitness, and I don't even say exercise and fitness anymore, I say mobility, they're just going to think I'm some leotard-wearing <laughs> fitness chick, which is fine. Right. I'm so glad you're there. But I'm an academic orthopedic surgeon, and for me to be valid, I need to do the research. So I started this program at University of Pittsburgh called the called Prima Performance and Research Initiative for Masters Athletes, and we did a series of research studies, which have all been published in, in amazing journals. Bruce Ryder at AJSM was the first to publish my work, and really give me a doorway to saying, you know, orthopedic surgeons. Uh, we're in the driver's seat. We are the gatekeepers of keeping people mobile and healthy in this country. And here's the data. So my data shows that, just to summarize, we don't significantly slow down until we're in our mid-70s. We can retain our lean muscle mass and look more like flank steak and not rump roasts way into our 70s and remain strong. We can preserve our brains. We did a study that took me five years to collect the data on that shows that chronic mobility preserves executive function of the brain. We did two studies that looked at bone marrow density and lo and behold, impact exercise, even as you progress into your 80s, can preserve your uh, bone density. And what do we know as orthopedic surgeons? That around 70, people fall down, break their hips, 
50% of them never return to pre-fall function and a full third, per, third of the men die, right? Yeah. So if I can do something, whether it's doing the research on aging, whether it's getting out on the airwaves and saying you have got to pound your bones across a lifespan so that you don't end up dying after we put a pin in your hip, that is work worth doing. And so that's the, that's the public-facing motivation. But within my own family, and when I give talks about this, I show the slide of a picture of my grandfather at uh, about 68 years old who is sitting in a recliner with his walker, with his oxygen mask on. And I juxtapose that picture with a picture of my own dad at 68 running his last marathon. The difference between the men is not just... Well, it's the same genetic profile, right? It's my genetic profile, but we have one example of someone who just let aging happen to them. And we have another profile, my father, who there has not been a day in his life that he has not been an endurance athlete. And even now, even though we stuck a total hip in him probably 10 years ago now, he still walks six miles a day. So it's a public-facing passion for knowing that we are not destined to frailty and my research that backs up that we can do something about it, coupled with my public platform, if you will, for active aging and my own personal story of my family who has harnessed the power of mobility to live better. You are doing God's work in this uh, arena. I lost my dad through a sequence of events that started with the fall. So I totally understand it. I'm going to put in the show notes links to all your books. This is great, great stuff you're doing. Are there any shortcuts to be had here? I know a lot of the men in the audience, we have advertisements directed at us about hmm. all these therapies, HGH, testosterone, you know, whatever, to kind of help nature along in that aging aspect. Is it is it snake oil? Is it got any value? Any merit? <laughs> Actually, I'm glad you asked me this because, you know, just just like menopause happens to women, right? right. I mean, our, our hormones, we don't need them anymore. We're not reproducing. Well, that's not true. We totally need them. And, and women, we could talk all day about the rise of women and talking about perimenopause and menopause and hormone replacement therapy. But what men don't want to talk about and what Richard Hawkins was one of the first orthopods to ever talk about testosterone therapy is that men go through andropause. And when a man shows up in an orthopedic clinic with multiple tendonitis or ruptured tendons or low energy or pale, it's time to look at their hormone levels. And it's not just testosterone. It's also estrogen and thyroid and a, and a battery. If you're not feeling like yourself anymore or you're gaining weight in your belly and you're looking like an apple instead of an athlete, it is okay to seek out a doctor who will measure your hormones. And sometimes you have to go to integrative medicine docs because not all PCPs do it. But what I want you to do is buyer beware. You can't supplement the supplement industry, even though being a multi-billion dollar industry is unregulated. So you can buy any bottle of sawdust labeled as vitality supplement, and you'll be taking chopped up tree. So what I want you to do is evaluate what you're doing. Do not be so desperate for feeling better that you don't choose the right experts or you just get something off the shelf. So yes, I think you should investigate it. If you can't find someone in the first doctor who will address it with you, find another or call me. I'll direct you. I'm happy to take emails because just like women need hormone replacement therapy, sometimes men can benefit from androgen replacement. And now listen, I want to warn you, no study of testosterone therapy has ever shown that you can become hyper-testosterone, right? right? But they can bring you up to normal levels so that you feel better. Great advice. While you're dispensing advice, any advice for the surgeons in the audience that are struggling looking at the digital realm and how do I even engage? It's overwhelming. Yeah all the different things I could be doing just to make the public in my area aware of what I'm doing. Any thoughts on that? So I think it's critical for all surgeons, whether you're employed or not, to have your own website and to create your own brand voice. Because if you do not take control of the way you are described, you are allowing someone else to talk for you. And I don't know any surgeon that likes to be spoken for. So you need a website. And if you don't, you know, and I'm going to make a lot of hospital administrators mad now, but I'd say a website outside of 
the hospital website because they have very different goals than you do, True. even as an employed surgeon. And there are lots of avenues for that. And listen, I, I, I do take emails. I have a business email, which is Vonda at VondaWright.com. And if someone is really serious about this, I will hook you up with my network of resources. So you need your own website. I suggest that you get control of your Google business page. Now that may take you hiring someone and I have a resource for that if you'd like, but you need to make sure that when you type your name into Google, which your patients do, that the right place comes up. And it's not just health grades or whatever, you know, third third site that you can't control. You can control your Google business page. So that's number one, get your own website. Number two, take control of your Google business page. And then listen, you're a surgeon. I suggest that you fork over a little money to hire a digital media expert to set up your Instagram, your Facebook, or whatever contact you think you can handle. You do not have to do it yourself. You can write it off as marketing. And why don't you get an expert so that you're not just tooling around? And, you know, time is money. Uh, Calculate what you make an hour. And if it's worth the time for you to figure it out yourself or spend a little money while you are then in the OR to hire an expert to do it. That's my three pieces of advice, but it's critical. Who wants to be spoken for? Not me, obviously. If you want to be the head, not the tail, lead the message. That's not, right. Not just respond to the message that's been handed to you. Right. Well, exactly. you, you have an amazing perspective on the reps in the audience, and there are many because do. your son is in that world. And I'm just really excited to ask you about this. What are your thoughts on the reps uh, that have crossed your path over the years? You know, what makes a good one? And what have you learned by watching what your son's been doing? I have been fortunate to be with some really great reps. Now, I just for clarity, there are many orthopedic surgeons have, who have huge consulting contracts with the companies, right? I don't. I'm bringing you my perspective from a very clean place. I've never been paid by anybody. And therefore, my relationships with them are pretty pure, actually. So my oldest son, Patrick Taglianetti, has been co-distributor for Smith & Nephew in Pittsburgh for his entire career since he got out of college. And uh, the relationship that was crafted included Smith & Nephew housing a rep in the OR continuously. That was a full-time job, right? One person. So I was fortunate my whole career to have my son in the OR with me. And we tried to keep our personal and private lives separate. But that relationship with him or with the amazing reps I had in Pittsburgh with Arthrex, we're just so fortunate to have groups that are invested in us. You know, Dave Hines is in Pittsburgh. I guess I'll mention all these names. And then we had great striker and pivot reps. But it's not just about knowing them. It's nothing about being taken out to dinner anymore because God knows I can, I can buy my own frigging dinner. Right. (laughs) And I don't need you to buy me pens. Although, you know, once before the real, the rules really cracked down one spine company, I don't even know why they did this. They sent me to a conference in Vail to learn about spine, which I gladly participated in. But since then, (laughs) gladly, but since then, you know, rules cracked down and I don't take any, Uh, relationship money. So my relationships with the reps are just that, relationships. I come to depend on them for the technical aspects of their gadgets. It doesn't mean that I don't know how to use them, but my OR staff doesn't always know how to use them. And I can't, in the middle of a technical surgery, teach my OR tech how to load the whoozy whatsy, right? So I rely on my rep, not just to open it, or hand it to the person who opens it, but to really be technically adept. So reps out there or distributors out there, do not send someone to a surgeon's OR who isn't technically sound. You get one chance because if that rep shows up and cannot help me, they're not going to come back. Because when I'm at a critical place at a surgery, I need the expertise they bring, right? Right. Number one. Number two, uh, it is about the relationship. If I come to trust you, And no, you always show up. I don't have to worry about if you're going to be there for the start of my case. My instruments are always there and clean. And that's what I appreciated about Patrick's business is because I know the ins and outs of it. I mean, they're running instruments all over the city in the middle of the night just to make sure the ORs are equipped, right? Right. 
That's the kind of ardent service we need. And that builds trust. And that means that if there's a choice between this gadget and that gadget, and they're almost the same, I'm going to choose the one from the rep that I can trust to show up. And then, you know what, there are times, it doesn't happen much anymore because I've been doing surgery a very long time, but when you have a really seasoned rep, you have somebody who's been in the field 10, 15 years, and they've been around a lot. And then you get in the OR and an unusual situation comes up. And I've tried all my bag of trick. Once in a while, I am still known to say, hey, Pat, what have you seen? You know, like when a metal piece comes off an instrument, this happened so many years ago. The first time this happens to you as a young surgeon, you're like panicked, right? I was going to swear right now, but I won't swear on your podcast. So then you're trying all your tricks. You're chasing it around. Hey, Patrick, what have you seen? And so the smart rep will say, well, you know, sometimes I see such and such. Or once I saw this as a way to get out of this problem, smart surgeons will consider that advice. And I think that comes with trusting your reps. So what I don't want you to say, just if you're ever in my room, what I don't want a rep to say is, oh, hey, doctor so-and-so does it this way, especially if that doctor is about 20 years my junior. Don't do that. (laughs) Good advice. (laughs) And that's just my ego thing, but I'm pretty sure that's going to be the same with a lot of other surgeons. That makes a lot of sense. I know as a rep on our side of it, when we take that experience of all the cases we've been in, and something does go sideways and we have seen a way out and we can share that and it contributes to the case. That's a high moment in our life. We live for Absolutely. those moments. We live for And it. we're so thankful. And we're thankful when that happens. So I want to give your young reps and your old reps a piece of advice that they may have never heard before. And sometimes I'm sure they don't do it intentionally, but it matters a lot. And, and maybe they've never heard it before. And it's not about ego, actually. But it is not uncommon because there are only 6% orthopedic women in this country for a rep or anybody. But I, since you're talking to reps, I'm picking on reps right now to come into a situation where they're one woman surgeon or you're emailing a bunch of surgeons and you say to all the men, you say, Dr. Smith. Dr. Jones, Dr. whatever, Dr. Brown. And then you say, hey, Vonda, do you see what I just did there? I do. Does it even register? Yeah. So, and you know what? I don't think it's malicious, but I'm going to tell you, reps, that it matters to us because we did the same amount of med school. We did the same amount of residency and fellowship. We engender the same trust from our patients. And whether you mean it or not, one way to lose the trust of your rep, of your surgeon quickly is to call all the men in the room by their professional title and to say, hey, Vonda, on the flip side, if we're socially friends and we meet in the community for dinner with our families, then call me Vonda, right? I'm friends like that with the Smith and nephew distributorship and, you know, cause my son owns it, right? All his people socially, when they're at my house, they say, Hey, Vonda, but in the OR in front of my patients, it's always Dr. Wright yes. and it matters. So if you're listening and you're trying to build your rep business, beware of those details. You brought up this word earlier. You're such a strategic visionary. What do you want your legacy to be? If I can manage over the course of my career to train enough great doctors who will help me on my vision to change the way we age in this country by using the tool that we have, which is mobility, to save people from the ravages of chronic disease and to be good doctors, not just cutters, right? Right. We don't want cutters. We don't want people who would rather cut you than look at you. And there are surgeons out there like that. We want people who really go the extra mile to care. And if I can teach surgeons to be like that, and if I can take care of people like that, then professionally, that will be my legacy. And people will go around telling stories like they do about Freddie Fu, about how all my trainees will say things like I do, like, an MRI cuts you like a tomato, blah, blah, blah. They will repeat the things I've said, and I hope in a good way to change the health of this country. That will have been work worth doing. 
you have been such an inspiration to me. Uh, entrepreneur, orthopreneur, intrapreneur. You're doing so many amazing things right now. And I'm just honored to have gotten to hear your story and uh, to be able to share with my audience all the exciting things you have going on right now. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Wright, for coming on Device Nation to share your amazing and inspirational story with us. I believe a TV show is in her future. Dr. Wright brought up the technology to click a button on her website and upload x-rays to her. Sounds like the future, but my medical images can provide this free plug-in for surgeons today. Images on a disk are so five minutes ago. Patient images archived in the cloud and accessible 24-7 are the future MyMedicalImages.com. Well, today was good. Today was fun. Tomorrow is another one. Thank you for that, Dr. Seuss. Really enjoyed having y'all around today and hope you have an awesome and productive week. 